It is often said that the essence of the spiritual journey is freedom. Not, mind you, freedom to do whatever you want to do, but freedom to be present, to be open and aware. The freedom to be in the moment, free to rejoice in the blessings of the moment, free to be sorrowful for its pain, free to respond wisely to your needs and the needs, the long-term needs of your neighbor. The person who is spiritually mature tends not to react impulsively or compulsively, but rather is free to decide what is appropriate. In this morning's gospel, we observe a Jesus whose ideas are still very much in formation. We see a Jesus still at the very beginning of his public ministry, still obviously trying to figure out what to do and what not to do, what traditions to keep and which ones to jettison. And yet, we see in this young Jesus one incredibly mature, spiritually mature, free to do what is called for in a just and loving way. So let's look at this morning's gospel and the story that unfolds. While Jesus is traversing the countryside along the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee, a leper comes up to him. A leper, a person who had some form of a skin disease, a person who, because of that disease, was supposed to keep a distance from everybody, to dishevel his hair so he could be recognized as unclean. A person who was to go about shouting, unclean, unclean, be aware. A person who was required to wear clothing that was ripped and ragged. This person that if Jesus entertained a conversation, even more so if he touched him, he himself would be rendered unclean. <clears throat> unclean meaning all the people he had come to save and teach would have to keep their distance unclean so that he couldn't go into any of the population centers, but would have to stay out in the wilderness areas. Unclean, the authorities would determine, 
because he was a rebel, unwilling to live within the public health requirements of his day. This would irritate the authorities no end. And he shortly would be about on his way to the cross and crucifixion. What should he do? What should he do? He is between the rock and the hard place that we often live in our own lives. And yet, in this difficult situation, he is thoughtful, he is mature, figuring out to do what he has to do. The man comes up to him and says, if you choose, you can make me whole. If you choose. And regardless of those consequences, that's exactly what Jesus chooses to do. He reaches out and he touches him. Now, don't do a cop-out on this newly minted, minted Messiah. This is a human being with all these fears, knowing these consequences, and yet he is able to act appropriately, maturely trying to set it up so his ministry will not be destroyed. And he acts. Personally, I find his ability to be centered, not reactive at this moment, as impressive as the physical healing itself. But how do you preach this story? As I asked that question to myself earlier in the week, I thought of what St. Francis of Assisi is reported to have said. Go out and preach the good news with your life. Use words only if necessary. In this Jesus, we see the good news in a life well and rightly lived. And so I thought to myself, 
maybe the good news to you all this morning would be to get some insight about how yourself you might enter into this path towards spiritual maturity, how you could claim this life that God has promised you and lived into it. So what came to mind was a five-step model. I can't verify it through research or document it in a dozen books, but it is what I've seen. Step one, you decide to live the fullest life you can live. Step two is about orientation. Where is your life headed? Step three, you stop or at least slow down. Step four, you decide to do no harm. And step five, you decide to do good. Step one, live the fullest life you can. What I'm thinking about are those many persons who I have met who have encountered some great obstacle in their life, some defeat, some failure, some loss that throws them to the ground, and yet they decide, with God's help, with the community's help, to get up off the floor and live. I'm thinking about Larry. He inherited a great fortune. Early in his investment career, he was also quite successful. And then he lost his family's fortune, the one he had earned. The family lost their home, and it was all because of his drinking. He could have run away and hidden in the shame. He might have thought about suicide. But instead, he joined AA, admitted the error of his ways, and decided to spend a life putting it back together and caring for others. I think about my father, the vice president of the second biggest cigar business in Germany, eight factories, who went off one day on the train to go to Holland to buy Indonesian wrapper. And as they reached the Dutch border, the SS troops came on board. 
and because he had Jewish ancestry, my father spent the night in jail. The next morning, they put him back on the train. He did his job. When he got back home, he turned to his young 19-year-old wife. They had been married less than a year and said, we need to leave all of this behind and move to America. I think of both my parents. My dad finally found a job sweeping the floor at American Tobacco. After a while, they had finally saved enough to buy an ice cream cone. They did so on a hot August day and in the fourth step away from the ice cream stand, the ice cream fell out of the cone and onto the sidewalk. They grasped each other and broke, both broke into sobs. And then they took a deep breath and went on. I think of my mother my father died when she was 50, leaving her very little, if anything at all. Three weeks later, she opened a catering business so she could herself live and give her children the American dream. The decision to get up off the floor or out of your bed on an average Tuesday morning and live into the fullest life you can. Number two is about orientation. Uh, I've read that if you don't know where you're going, you can get there by any route. But Christians aren't about any root. Like the wise man after meeting Herod, they go back by a different way, the right way. If you were to be baptized in the end of the fourth century, after preparation, the second thing you would do is go to the river where the baptism was taking place and face the west. The first thing you would do is drop your clothing, that symbol of your old life, and then you would turn. Turn from darkness to light. Turn so that you were facing the rising sun. They believed that the Son of God, S-O-N, would return when the Son, S-U-N, rose on Easter morning. And so they oriented themselves towards the light and committed themselves to live their lives headed in that direction. Of course, they knew that they would fail. 
Look at the baptism service when you have a moment. Virtually all the verbs are turning, returning, repent, reorient. Which way are you going in your life? Third, stop or at least slow down. That's the hardest thing for us driven moderns, particularly type A driven moderns, to do. But it's so important. Where am I? What is really going on? What am I being called to do? You know, I think the most um, hated phrase among Episcopalians is oft repeated in the Bible. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of God means stop before you make this decision. And among the voices you listen to is the voice of God demanding, praying, encouraging you, whatever. Listen so that you might respond in a mature and holy way. Number four, agree, commit yourself to do no harm. Like the physician keeping their Hippocratic oath, if we charge ahead to do good, to do what we know is right, if we do that quickly, we neglect thinking through the harm we might do. Do no harm. And then, yes, be about doing good the best you can. Make the decision to live a full life. Ask yourself where you're going with that life. We say the creed in these services not to share a list of doctrine, which has probably driven more people away from church than any other document I know, but to figure out what's your orientation, where are you going, Stop, do no harm, do good. Now, this is the point where I'm supposed to say I'm going to close with a story. But I'm not going to do that this morning. What I'm going to suggest is that you find a member of the search committee Find one of those people intimately involved in the calling process of your new rector and ask them why they're so excited, why they feel so good about the work they're about. Because it's my guess that what you'll hear is that they know they've gone through 
this spiritual process of stopping, thinking, praying, and I hope you get infected by their hope and their joy. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Mm -hmm.